Well, to begin with, let's open our Bibles, please, at uh, Matthew chapter 1. You know, one of the joys of being an expectant parent is that you get, uh, you get to think long and hard about the name uh, to be given to the uh, soon-to-be-delivered child. But neither of Jesus' earthly parents had that privilege. Joseph, who was Jesus' legal father, and Mary, who was Jesus' biological mother, didn't have a say as to what their son would be named. God himself commanded them to call him Jesus. And so that was the end of the decision. There was actually another time in biblical history when a man was named Jesus, <clears throat> actually the Hebrew version of it, and he was also given that name by someone who wasn't his parents. In Numbers chapter 13 verse 16, Moses changed the name of his most trusted military commander from Hoshea to Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew rendering of the name Jesus, which is a Greek word. Hoshea means he will save. But Moses changed his name to Joshua, meaning Jehovah will save. Joshua's new name made a significant distinction. His new name clearly pointed away from Joshua himself to the Lord Jehovah who would save his people as Joshua led them into battle. 1400 years later in the middle of the night an angel appeared unto Joseph and told him to name Mary's son Jesus. A Greek name which means Jehovah will save only this time. The name was not pointing away from, but pointing to the one who bore the name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, Jehovah will say, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name reveals the two most important things about him. Firstly, who he is, and secondly, why he came. The name Jesus reveals his identity. The baby born of Mary was Jehovah who saves. He is the I am. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth who called Abraham, who destroyed Sodom. Who met Moses in the burning bush, who divided the Red Sea, who came down in fire on Mount Sinai. This little baby was Jehovah God in the flesh. As the prophet Isaiah had predicted, he would be Emmanuel, that is God with us. And Matthew puts an exclamation point on the reality that Jesus is God by reporting the virgin birth. He makes that point in verse 18. And he makes that point again in verse 20. And he makes the point again in verse 23. And he makes the point a fourth time in verse 25. 
Or as Craig Blomberg teaches the virgin birth, quote, is a very fitting way to reinforce the conviction that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. The name Jesus reveals his identity. He's God incarnate. He's Jehovah, the virgin-born Son of God. But the name Jesus also reveals his mission. God the Son came into the world, born of a virgin. He came to fulfill a mission, to save his people from their sins. Jesus' primary mission wasn't to rescue people from physical, financial or political problems, although he can do that and ultimately he will do that for his people, ultimately. But Jesus' primary mission wasn't to deal with the symptoms, but to deal with the disease. Only Jesus' atoning death upon the cross makes the forgiveness of our sin possible because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. Sadly, many people who talk about Jesus today, especially at this time of year, are <clears throat> content to do so, but they don't want to talk about sin. Even some so-called Christian churches are committed to avoiding the very mention of sin, but instead focus on presenting messages which are more positive or psychologically uplifting. And yet you can't even begin to understand the reason for Jesus unless you're prepared to talk about sin. You can't begin to appreciate Jesus' identity. You can't begin to appreciate his mission unless we are prepared to humble ourselves and to acknowledge that he came because of sin. One author makes the point this way, and I quote, he says, <clears throat> Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present from a friend on Christmas morning, and it's a dieting book. Then there's another present. You take off the ribbon, you unwrap it, and you find it's another book from another friend. Overcoming selfishness. There never has been a gift offered that makes you so swallow your pride to the depths that the gift, the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we're lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of God the Son himself could save us. To accept the true Christmas gift, you have to admit that you are a sinner. You need to be saved by grace. That is condescending lower than any of us really want to go. End quote. Jesus is Jehovah God. He is God in the flesh. Come to save us. And until you are willing to admit that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself, you haven't even begun to understand why his name is Jesus. Verse 21, she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But notice what it says in verse 22. <clears throat> now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and bring forth a son, and, thou, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew tells us that the virgin birth was prophesied. It was predicted by the prophet Isaiah, quoting from Isaiah, who lived 700 years 
before Jesus was born. It was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. But if you look further into the Old Testament, we can see that it was predicted even earlier than that. It's prophesied implicitly all the way back in Genesis 3. I want you to turn with me, please, back to Genesis chapter 3. The word Genesis means beginning. Indeed, the very first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible famously commences with, in the beginning, God. And then we have Genesis 1 and 2, two glorious chapters which describe the beginning of God's creation. And we read through those chapters with beautiful redundancy. And God said, and it was so. And we read, it was good. It was good. Every day, God looked at what he had made and it was good. And, and it was ultimately, it was very good. But tragically, Genesis chapter 3 records humanity's breaking of God's perfect world. And to use the popular expression, Adam and Eve had one job. And they failed miserably. And Genesis chapter 3 through 50 are more about endings than about beginnings. Genesis 4 records the first murder, the ending of Abel's life. Followed by the ending of many others. Genesis chapter 5. We read of genealogies that are punctuated with incessant obituaries and he died and he died and he died and he died genesis 6 and 7 we read of a global catastrophe a worldwide flood not a cute story for nursery walls but a nightmare inducing record of god's wrath upon man's sinfulness in Genesis 19, we read the destruction of the destruction of sinful Sodom and godless Gomorrah. And it is no accident that the book of Genesis, which began with God's beautiful creation and Adam in paradise, the book ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. But this book of death is, also promises life. In the very middle of Genesis 3, where we read about the fall, humanity's sin, and the curse of God's punishment upon sin, we also read what scholars call the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first evangelium, the word for gospel. It's a promise about Jesus, who would be born of a woman, it says Verse 15, the Lord tells Satan, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, the seed of the woman. And it, that is the seed of the woman, that is Jesus, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. No sooner had Adam and Eve sinned than God makes this announcement about a victorious offspring, a seed of the woman. Which is a very significant expression because it implies that this individual will not be the, the seed of a man. The implication is very clear. And it is to be noted because normal, normally genealogies are, tra are traced through the father. You see then Genesis 5. 
And the genealogy lists only the fathers, and that's the way it is with every genealogy in the Bible, but not here. Here we have this prediction of this victorious offspring, a promised saviour, who is not the seed of man, but the seed of the woman. As it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. When Mary heard the first uh, indication of how she was involved in all this, her response was, well, how can this be? How can this be? I, I'm, a, I'm a virgin. I am not married. I've never been with a man. The angel Gabriel said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. For with God nothing is impossible. As it was in creation, so in the incarnation, God spake and it was done. Thus the very first messianic prophecy directs our attention to the woman, not to the man, to the physical mother, not to any physical father, for the obvious reason that Jesus was God in the flesh. He had no earthly father. He was born of a virgin. A fact implicit here in Genesis 3, but explicitly stated in Isaiah chapter 7. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 7, please. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, predicts the birth of Jesus and thus introduces a great mystery. God's manifest in the flesh. Jesus is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew, in his gospel, he writes, chapter 1, verse 23, and he makes it very clear that Isaiah's prophecy there, Isaiah 7, 14, is a prophecy about a virgin birth, and it relates directly and exclusively and uniquely to Jesus. Isaiah chapter 7 begins with Isaiah's admonition to King Ahaz, who was king of Judah at that time, to trust in the Lord for deliverance from the impending threat of an Israeli-Syrian coalition. Verse 9 says, if he will only believe, then he would be established. And in verse 11, Isaiah offered him any extraordinary sign, any extraordinary sign. You just name it, God will do it to confirm the truthfulness of what he's saying. But in his unbelief, Ahaz rejected the offer, verses 11 and 12. But God promised to give a sign anyway. Not just for him. A stupendous sign that would mark the fullness of time. And would change everything for everybody. In verse 14, the sign was to be the extraordinary birth of an extraordinary son. And Isaiah announces the incomprehensible birth with this interjection, behold, he says. It's like putting an exclamation point at the beginning of the sentence to draw special attention to something remarkable that's going to be declared. And what he's about to say defies human experience and human understanding. A virgin would conceive and bear a son. Miraculous. 
In verse 14, the word translated virgin is Alma. The word refers to a woman who has not had intimate relations with a man. Now, there are some scholars who say that the person that Isaiah is referring to here is merely a young woman of marriageable age. Nothing miraculous about that. Yet the word Alma is the only word in the Old Testament that designates a virgin in the strictest sense of the term without any need for additional qualification or explanation. Whenever the word occurs in the Old Testament, the purity of the young woman is asserted and assumed. But there's another Old Testament Hebrew word which is also translated virgin. That's the word betula. And that word... <coughs> can also be used of a widow. For example, we read that in Joel chapter 1, verse 8. That is someone who has been married. And when that word is used to describe someone who is a sexually pure virgin, it requires additional explanation, additional qualification, like we find in Genesis twenty four sixteen, when it says that the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, that's the word betula, Neither had she known any man. Okay, that's the word betula. And if Isaiah had used that, if, if he had used that word, he would have required additional explanation to make the point that this was a miraculous birth. And if he didn't require, if he didn't provide any such <clears throat> additional qualification, then the whole interpretation of the whole thing could be open to question. But instead of that, instead of that, being guided by the Holy Spirit, he used the word Alma, a word which, the only word which by itself, without any further description, refers to a young woman who is a virgin. Furthermore, if we look at this verse in the Septuagint, which is the ancient Jewish translation of the Old Testament into Greek, the word used here is the Greek word Parthenos, which is the same word that Matthew uses when he writes under inspiration. And the meaning of the Greek word parthenos is an undisputed reference to a virgin in the narrowest sense and silences any contrary interpretation and settles the question about the, the, nat the nature of this supernatural conception. Now how a virgin can conceive is beyond human explanation. But it is a cardinal truth of Christianity a stupendous miracle, a supernatural act of God. To explain it is beyond our human ability, but to deny it goes beyond the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And yet there are many who do deny it. It's our second major heading there. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? This is a question that Jesus put to the Pharisees. And the same question has been voiced to every generation since Jesus walked the earth. The Jewish religious leaders, they believed that the Messiah would be the son of David, a human member of the royal family, and that would be it, nothing more, nothing less. They rejected the notion that the Messiah would also be divine. And that is why they charged Jesus with blasphemy when he claimed to be the son of David and the son of God. This denial about Messiah being divine has persisted for 20 centuries. Now the question about Jesus' true identity had been worded differently. 
But the answers have always been basically the same. How could God become a man? How could one person be both divine and human at the same time? And atheists and skeptics and Christendom, which enhances, embraces a liberal theology, they're all united in their denunciation of the incarnation and the virgin birth. To them, it's irrational that a trinity would exist. To them, it's illogical that God could become flesh. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the virgin birth of Christ. And their denials are perhaps more subtle than many Christians perhaps might suspect. Each generation has produced its own heretics and apostates. In the first third of the 20th century, Harry Emerson Fosdick, pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City, argued for a Christianity without a belief in the virgin birth of Christ. In the second third of the 20th century, Archbishop, sorry, Anglican Bishop John A.T. Robinson repudiated the virgin birth in his two controversial books, one honest to God and the other one, but that I can't believe. And in the last third, the liberal scholars manifest their rejection of the deity of Christ and his virgin birth through their conclusions of, of the Jesus seminar. You might have heard of that. There's a sense in which we shouldn't be unduly alarmed by such denials. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, what if they did not believe? What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Let God be true and every man a liar. The fact of Christ's virgin birth stands in spite of pharisaical and contemporary denials. The fact of it stands. God is true. Anyone who speaks against it is a lie. God is true. The fact stands. Of that we are assured. We shouldn't be unduly alarmed when it's attacked. But we should be deeply concerned. Because we're not dealing here with merely academic issues. These are matters of life and death. These are matters of eternal life and eternal death. A rejection of the deity of Christ, a rejection of the virgin birth of Christ, caused the Pharisees to die in their sins because they believed not that Jesus was he, that Jesus was God in the flesh. And for anyone else who denies that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, Jesus says to them too, ye shall die in your sins. On another occasion, near Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And in reporting what the common opinions were, several answers came back. Some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're some other prophet. In each case, Jesus was acknowledged to be a holy man and even a spokesman for, for God, but, but merely a man. To them, he was not God speaking. Jesus then became more direct. But whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that I am? And to this question, Peter replied, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter identified Jesus both as human and divine. How did Peter reach that conclusion? Jesus explained it. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. 
In other words, God had blessed Peter in that the Lord had opened Peter's eyes, gave him spiritual understanding to perceive the uniqueness of the person of Christ. This is not something that we apprehend with the natural mind. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. But the deity of Christ is something, one of those things about, the, about God, which we, we need the Lord's help to understand and to accept by faith. So in his incarnation, in his virgin birth, there is the resultant union of two natures coming together in one single person. These truths are hidden from the wise and the prudent, Jesus said, but they're apprehended by those who are childlike in their faith. The blessing or the curse of God upon any individual is in direct proportion to their acceptance or their rejection. The deity of Christ, which is dependent upon the virgin birth of Christ. That's why John Walwood said the incarnation of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. Upon it, the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. A real incarnation requires a literal virgin birth. They're the two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. For many years, Christians who believe the fundamentals of the scriptures, they've been marked by acceptance of major Bible doctrines, the inspiration of scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, his substitutory atonement, his bodily resurrection, his second coming. They're all a doctrinal package. You either embrace all of them or you deny all of them. You cannot logically believe in some of them while rejecting others. But who say ye that I am? What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? These are questions you must answer. They will affect your eternal destiny. If you believe not that Jesus is he, if the Jesus is God come in the flesh, Jesus says you'll die in your sins. Therefore, belief in the virgin birth is essential. And that brings us to our final point. Belief in the virgin birth is essential. For several things. Number one, belief in the virgin birth is essential to affirm the truthfulness of the Bible. Since the Bible clearly teaches the virgin birth of Jesus, you can't claim to believe anything else that the Bible says if you deny the virgin birth. The main reason why skeptics reject the virgin birth is because they embrace naturalism. They reject the miracles of Jesus. They re reject the miracles of God recorded in the scripture. They think they're just fables handed down from a time when people were not scientifically knowledgeable like we are today. But the Bible begins by assuming the fact of God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible teaches that the reason men reject God is not intellectual. It's not an intellectual reason. It's a moral reason. Romans 1 tells us people reject the truth. They suppress the truth about God is because they don't want to be answerable to a creator. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that their own sin, they're standing, they have to be answerable to God for their life. The fact of an intelligent creator is evident in his creation. To think that anything as complex as life upon this earth could have evolved Simply by chance plus time, it's a leap of faith that runs counter to the principles of the scientific method. When we examine a complex me mechanism, whether it's a watch or a computer, 
We do not assume that given enough time, such a thing would happen by chance. We know that there behind it was an intelligent designer who put all things, these things together for a purpose. And which is more logical? To, the, to conclude that something as complex as life upon planet Earth and conditions necessary to sustain it all happened by chance over billions of years. Or to conclude that an omniscient, omnipotent creator designed it. If a supernatural God is the source of creation, then miracles are not a problem. God can interrupt his natural laws of creation and perform supernatural deeds if he chooses. And that's exactly what the angel said to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. Virgin birth is a miracle possible to God. Critics will say that the virgin birth is just a myth, similar to the ancient myths where influential people, influential, influential men were conceived by the gods having relations with human women. And it's not surprising that Satan would invent stories such as this, counterfeit stories such as this, to confuse and to cloud the facts surrounding the birth of Christ. But invariably, those stories sound like stories. They sound just like fables, which they are. Whereas the biblical accounts read like factual history. Matthew is one of the twelve. And we can assume that his source was either Jesus or Mary. Luke states that he wrote his gospel after careful research, talking to eyewitnesses. He tells us that in the first four verses of chapter 1. It's probable that he talked directly with Mary. Matthew and Luke's accounts are independent of each other, yet they both report the same miraculous event. And thus to reject the virgin birth, we must reject the testimony of two independent historians who lived at the time and whose writings have been accepted as factual history by thousands of scholars. If a person rejects the historicity of of the virgin birth and it claims it's just a spiritual lesson to teach us some moral lesson and that person has effectively cut himself off from the necessity of believing any history in the gospels and that's what the jesus seminar actually does it does that very thing a bunch of people sitting down talking giving their subjective opinions about you know do do i really think jesus would have said that no i don't think he would have said that what do you do you think he would have said that no i don't think he would have said that he wouldn't have said it that way he wouldn't have said that and this is their subjective conclusions and using the same thing you would have to reject every piece of literature because it didn't sound like the person should be writing it the virgin birth of christ was only one of numerous prophecies written hundreds of years before his birth, which were fulfilled. And together with the historical accuracy of Matthew and Luke, these prophecies affirm the truthfulness of the Bible. And you cannot claim to believe the truthfulness of the Bible if you reject and deny the virgin birth. Secondly, belief in the virgin birth is essential to affirm the deity of Christ. If Jesus Christ is the son of a human father, and a human mother through natural biological processes, then he is not God in the flesh. It's that simple. He might, under those circumstances, be someone indwelt by the Spirit of God, 
someone upon whom the Spirit of God rested, but he would only be merely a man. His existence would have begun at conception. He would not, could not be the eternal God come in human form. But the scriptures repeatedly affirm the full deity of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. But under the sun he said thy throne O God is forever and ever. Scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. John chapter 8 verse 58. Jesus said unto them verily verily I say unto you before Abraham was I am. And in John chapter 20, verse 28 and 29, when Thomas saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he bowed down before him and said, my Lord and my God, Jesus didn't correct him for blasphemy, but rather he accepted and commended such worship. Alexander McLaren has observed, and I quote, no one ever proffered to Jesus honor that he put by. No one ever brought to him a trust which he said was either excessive or misdirected. Christ takes as his due all the honour, love and trust which any man can give him. He's either exorbitant appetite for adulation or the manifestation of conscious divinity. The same author pointing out that Jesus called men to believe on him concludes, quote, either he was wrong and then he was a crazy enthusiast, only acquitted of blasphemy because of his being convicted of insanity. Or else, or else he was God manifest in the flesh. No natural union of a physical husband and wife could ever bring God into the world. That's the core truth of the Christmas story. The babe in Bethlehem is uniquely God with us. And this means, and the means that God used to take human flesh upon himself was the miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. And to affirm the full deity of Jesus Christ, you must affirm the supernatural virgin birth. Thirdly, belief in the virgin birth is essential to affirm the sinless humanity of Jesus Christ. If Jesus was born of natural parents, then he was born like a sinner, as a sinner like the rest of humanity. If Jesus was born of natural parents, he would have been a sinner that needed a saviour himself. If he had his own sin, he could not have died as a substitute for the sin of the world. The scriptures teach that the whole human race descended from Adam is born under the curse of sin and to redeem the race from sin. Jesus Christ, God the Son, had to identify with humanity and yet to be absolutely sinless himself. And just as the scriptures teach the full deity of Jesus Christ, so they teach his full humanity being a sinless humanity. He was not a hybrid God-man, half of each. He is undiminished deity and perfect humanity united in one person forever. Jesus had to have at least one human parent. Otherwise he wouldn't have shared our humanity. But through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth. Jesus was able to be fully human and yet sinless. 
The angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of the, the Most High will overshadow her. And that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. You know, some theologians have speculated that the human, that the sinful nature is communicated through the male. We can't say that for certain, but what we can say for certain is what the angel asserted. That because Mary would conceive miraculously by the Holy Spirit, her, the child born of her, would be the Holy Son of God. Virgin birth is necessary to affirm the sinless humanity of Jesus. Thus the Belief in the virgin birth is necessary to affirm the word of God. It's necessary to believe in the deity of Christ, his sinless humanity. And finally, belief in the virgin birth is essential to affirm that Jesus Christ is the saviour. Christmas is not just a story to make us feel warm and fuzzy about your family and friends and peace on earth. At the heart of the Christmas story is the fact that there is a lost human race alienated from a holy God because of our sin. And the angel told Joseph, call his name Jesus, Jehovah who saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. Today you are either in your sins and alienated from God facing his judgment or you in Christ because of Christ are saved from your sins so that you are reconciled to God through faith in Christ. If you are lost in your sin, your greatest need is for a saviour. And Jesus Christ, the virgin born son of God, is the only saviour. He's the only mediator between God and man. The God-man, Christ Jesus. To be our saviour, you had to be a man. Only a man could die for the human race. The wages of sin is death. To take sin upon himself, he had to die. But he had to be an acceptable substitute. A substitute without sin. Had to be God in the flesh. Bishop Mole once said, A saviour not quite God is a bridge broken at the further end. But the virgin birth is also a picture of the new birth. It parallels the new birth that God wants to give to every sinner. Think about it this way. The initiative and the power are totally from God. Mary could not do anything except passively receive what God would do for her. She couldn't offer her best efforts. She didn't promise to try hard so that she might bear the Messiah. All she could do was to respond in faith and say, Be it unto me according to thy word. And God did the rest. And that's the same way it is to us. The gospel comes to us. And it's not a message of try harder. It's not a message of give your best efforts. It's a message of salvation offered freely if you'll receive it by faith. And, and our response is just, just got to be, Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. If, if this is what you've said, this is what I believe. If this is what you've said, this is what I accept. The Apostle James explains it this way. Of his own will begat he us through the word of truth. And then he concludes that we are to receive with meekness that implanted word, that engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. God comes to us with his word. The message is the gospel. Christ died for the sins of the world. That's the message. That's the word of God implanted in your heart. 
And if you receive it with meekness, you say, Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. If your word says you'll save the sinner, here am I believing that word. God will bring new life to you of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Brethren, the Father sent the Son to be the saviour of the world. The Father sent his virgin-born Son to be the saviour of the world. The fact of it affirms the truthfulness of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the sinless humanity of Jesus and that Jesus is the saviour of the world, the only saviour of the world. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that we might be saved. This is, this is good news, brethren. This is the good news of Christmas. Let's thank the Lord for that good news. Let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the provision of one saviour for all men it's a remarkable thing that you've done for us uh, to think that you would come to earth uh, born of a baby son of god god the son god in the flesh coming into the world in that way miraculously coming into the world in that way lord thank you for your condescension to us thank you that we're willing to to step down from heaven all the way to the cross, to the death of the cross, all the way to a tomb. Lord, thank you that uh, you're willing to shed your precious blood for us so that we might be saved. There's no other blood that can cleanse us from our sin but the blood of Christ. Sinless blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you've put it all together in the scriptures for us. Beginning there, right back in Genesis, the story of redemption is unfolded, reaches a wonderful climax in the New Testament, in the person and work of Christ. Our Father, we, like the wise men did, we bow before you in, in worship and adoration, praise and thanksgiving. Our Lord, for the wonderful gift of your Son, Jesus, who saves us from our sin. We exalt that name this morning. We give you honour and praise for the Lord Jesus, we pray in his worthy name. Amen.